Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. You know, I don't want to be scared of my students. I want to be able to connect with people and have deep mind and heart opening conversations with them. And just really the idea that any interaction with them could lead to my immediate demise feels so impossible as the background condition for doing that. When you think about the conditions that have been most conducive to the spread of COVID-19, prolonged contact with lots of people in enclosed spaces, colleges and universities have them all. Students, faculty, and staff had their spring semesters interrupted by the first wave of the pandemic. With fall fast approaching, it's tempting to go back to business as usual, but the virus may not cooperate. This is Making the Call, a podcast about how we make impossible choices. I'm Zeke Emanuel. I'm an oncologist, bioethicist, and health policy expert. And I'm Jonathan Moreno. I'm a bioethicist, philosopher, and historian. In this episode, we're taking on higher education. When and how will it really be safe to go back to school? Jonathan, both you and I are professors, and we really take our teaching seriously. I know you just started teaching online for the summer courses. How's it been going for you? Well, Zeke, I'll say I think I'm getting the content across to the students, but I just feel that it's not a complete educational experience. I didn't fall in love with teaching 40 plus years ago to look at a screen and look at tiled faces. I find it frustrating. Has anything gone well with the online element? Actually, I think the discussions go better than I had expected. What I find really difficult is picking up cues when, you know, as you and I like to do, we like to perform, we like to get reactions from people. And I just can't tell if I'm going too quickly, if I'm not being clear enough, if I'm not giving enough background when I pick up a topic. I find that really frustrating. I have to say, when I've done online teaching, the thing that gets me the most is you have the less of an ability to be Socratic. You can't just spontaneously ask some person whose name you don't know a question and sort of get the class to focus on that question and that person. And I find that inhibiting online. No, exactly. That's exactly the way I find it. But maybe, you know, it's partly a function of seniority. I hesitate to say maybe we're just not cut out for a new era of new formats for teaching. Since we're gray hairs, as they say, and we're at higher risk, are you fearful about going back and maybe doing classes in person? I wouldn't say I'm fearful. I'm torn. I'm a little reluctant. I guess, you know, despite the fact that I so much miss the in-person experience of teaching, and I really miss my colleagues, our colleagues, and yet there are pretty high stakes for people who are older, and um, you know I'm I'm very well aware of that. And we have a big, complicated campus. There are a lot of people around, and until we really know where this virus is, I think I'm going to be pretty hesitant. Well, Jonathan, you and I are not the only ones with concerns about going back to campus and teaching in person. Our producer Max spoke to Ashley Borer. 
She's an assistant professor of gender and peace studies at the University of Notre Dame. My job is that I get to think about and curate a set of exciting new ideas that I'm interested in thinking about and talking about more, bringing that as an offering to young people and to see their reactions and their responses and their critiques. And I mean, I love being able to talk about Marxism and intersectionality and anarchism and social movements and how to think about privilege and oppression. I learn just as much from my students as they learn from me, if, if not more. Many universities still haven't said much about what exactly is going to happen next semester. But Ashley's school sent out an email in May. So I was home, (laughs) like I'm sure most people were, when I heard about Notre Dame's plans for the fall. The email was vague about some of the details, but what was clear was that Notre Dame expects to resume full face-to-face instruction. In fact, they're planning to come back early at the beginning of August and end the semester by Thanksgiving. Honestly, my first feeling was sheer terror. As someone with an autoimmune condition, the thought of coming back to a campus that on any given day has tens of thousands of students, faculty, and staff very tightly packed together in small classrooms, crowded hallways, unsanitized elevators, restrooms, is an incredibly scary scenario for someone like me. It felt quite a bit like my life and health and safety were being disregarded in the name of getting back to normal under, of course, conditions that are anything but normal. Ashley was disappointed by the university's decision, but not really that surprised. Many universities have embraced a model that is significantly based in a financial understanding of an institution rather than a values or justice-based understanding of what higher education is about. For example. Massively inflating tuition, turning university athletics into significant revenue streams, relying more and more on adjunct, low-wage contracts for teaching that often lack basic benefits or job security, transitioning significantly to a high-cost dorm system that makes the cost of education in the United States astronomically more expensive than anywhere else in addition to the inflated tuition. All of these things and more suggest to me that what is happening in higher education is a focus on treating the university as a way to accumulate money at the expense of providing the most world-expanding education that we could be. Ashley's not only worried about herself, she's also worried about her students. Especially if universities assume that because students tend to be younger, they're not at risk for getting very sick from coronavirus. Students are not universally in their early 20s, especially at many institutions, like public institutions and community colleges, but also at at private elite universities. Many of them have children and families. 
This discourse also significantly discounts that students may also have underlying health conditions or caring responsibilities for siblings, parents, grandparents, etc. And it also discounts this deeply emotional fact that it is harder to pay attention to schoolwork when the world is crumbling around you. Going back to campus in the fall would be detrimental not only to Ashley's physical health, but her mental health and her work. In order to teach classes that are about gender and race and sexuality, one has to be really vulnerable and honest, right? And form a connection with one's students. And that kind of of work feels totally impossible when I will by default be looking at my students as carriers of a virus that could very well kill me. You know, I don't want to be scared of my students. I just like don't want to be scared of them. I want to be able to hold on to the thing that I love about my job, which is getting to connect with people and have deep mind and heart opening conversations with them. And just really the idea that any interaction with them could lead to my immediate demise feels so impossible as the background condition for doing that. Something that 2020 has taught me is that visioning far in the future feels at this point like a fool's game. It's hard for me to say exactly what I'll do because the world seems to be changing so quickly every moment and every day. And all I can say is that whatever I'll do, it will be based in both the desire to give my students a strong pedagogical experience and also in the necessity to defend and protect my life and my health and that of my family. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Zeke, since the ancient world, we've had this kind of Athenian vision of teachers and students sitting around, talking to each other, criticizing each other, riffing on new ideas. And that's great. That's what college and universities should be doing. But do you think that the leaders of these institutions are perhaps reopening for the wrong reasons? Are there kind of pressures and incentives for them that aren't really so positive? 
Well, Jonathan, as you know, I am, in addition to being a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, administrator in the central administration, and there are a lot of pressures on a university. You know, the modern university has to worry about international students. There are lots of parents who want their students to go back. There's a perception that in-person education is better than online education. There are towns and cities that depend upon universities and colleges for keeping the stores open and keeping the residents employed. So I do think that there are a lot of pressures for any decision to reopen or not. And, you know, when you're talking about small private liberal arts colleges, they're really in a tough position. For the most part, these are the schools that are the most dependent on annual tuition to stay afloat. They don't have big grants. Many of them don't have big donors. or They don't have a lot of money necessarily they can spend in a rainy day from their endowments. And as you mentioned, if international students stay home and others defer admission, they could go out of business. Yeah, I do think those pressures are pretty intense on the senior administration. I have to say, though, one of the things that worries me is that we sort of are anticipating the fall is going to be somehow different and the virus prevalence is going to be different. It's not going to be as bad as it was in the spring. And I'm not sure where those estimates come from and filter into the administrator's evaluation of whether to come back or not. Well, those are a lot of variables that do have to be considered. And we spoke to the president of a small liberal arts college to try to get some of the answers. Elizabeth Bradley is the president of Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Vassar is a pretty prestigious place. It's not really in danger of going under. But President Bradley, besides being a college administrator, is an expert in public health. Before coming to Vassar in 2017, she was at Yale University, where she founded and led the Global Health Leadership Initiative. Here's Betsy Bradley. I suppose when you took the Vassar job, this wasn't what you were expecting. <laughs> Every day is a new day. <laughs> I definitely was not expecting it. I feel that Yale prepared me well for a lot of the leadership challenges, but certainly every day I learn something new. You know, millions of people, students, parents, professors, the support staff of higher education are waiting to find out what happens in the fall. What's Vassar's plan for the fall at this point? Well, of course, for the fall, we know that we could continue the status quo the way we are now. We are doing remote learning, and we do have about 250 students this whole spring that stayed on campus because they had really no safe and viable other place to live while they were studying, but all of the courses were online, and we could continue that. I think we've actually gotten very good at it, and quality of the education is excellent, but it's different. So even as we know that's for sure, we're really stretching to do more. We anticipate that we will be able to bring students, invite them all, back to campus in the fall, in late August, as we had planned, and are working very diligently with federal, regional, and local guidelines to ensure we can do that safely. When you go into the fall, are you planning to have all students live in singles? And what are you thinking about in terms of the bathroom situation? As I said before, we are absolutely going to follow any 
federal, regional, or local guidelines that come out relative to this. But so far, Governor Cuomo's guidelines to higher education have not included that everybody must be in a single, nor have the Connecticut guidelines. So we think we probably will not do that. However, we will bring students back in a staggered way, requiring them to have evidence of a negative COVID test within three to four days before they arrive on campus. And then we will test them again within a few days, at least a week, so that we will know two negative tests. And that's just because the reliability of one test isn't always fabulous. So two negative tests. And we anticipate at that point, anybody who has been positive would go into a set of self-quarantine beds that we've put aside and isolation beds as needed as we've put aside. So we're considering that the dormitories really will start to, if you will, pod with each other and that groups of students really assigned to use specific bathrooms at you know specific times, et cetera, can start to kind of act like a family. We live with our family members, and I think we can do the same thing in the college. But Betsy, we do know that spread is much higher in family members because they're living together. Mm. Well, I think a lot of that also has to do with the boundary that is put around the family. So that would be an added thing. We're hoping that we can, in fact, keep our students particularly safe because of the geography that is Vassar. The colleges are all different. And our physical layout is one in which the campus is really set aside from the city and very much bounded around it. And so we are developing ways to keep that perimeter socially bound. So students come, they're dropped off here, they don't leave the campus. We bring other things to campus to make it a fruitful and rich environment, but having them stay here. So two negative tests and you stay on campus and then everything we bring in, we treat with tremendous care. I think we'll be able to keep the population very safe. So clearly you're expecting your students to be responsible. They will be enforcing this plan themselves, I guess. Is that right? Yeah, there really is a lot to be said, even about public health more generally, how the community itself establishes norms and expectations and holds itself accountable. Clearly, leadership matters, and we will be all over this, but I do believe that the best way to get adherence to a set of norms is to have them absorbed by the community where students are looking out for each other because they want to stay healthy. And I think we can do that. It's a relatively cohesive and uh you know, smaller college than some of the universities that we're all familiar with. And I think if a higher education institution can do it, Vassar can. I guess I'm a little perplexed. So if I were a student at Vassar, you know, and 18 to 20 year olds are not the most uh, rule adhering group. And I say, you're going to keep me on campus, but you're having the staff come in, you're having the professors come in. Why is that going to protect the campus or protect me? Doesn't that just limit my freedom while exposing me to the same risks? Yeah, I don't really think so. The fact is that faculty and employees who are not 18 to 22, they're older and they're employed, and we have some say over how they conduct themselves while they are on the campus. Our expectation is that faculty and employees will, in fact, completely social distance, always be masked, take the utmost precautions, and That, I think, is something very credible, and we've seen it 
in other companies that are trying to come back as well, a set of employee guidelines that really have to be followed. And if they're not followed, you know, there's education and learning and ultimately consequences, employment consequences for that. Not so easy with students who are younger, they're living here, they're overnight, they're doing lots of things. So we're trying to model this approach, recognizing that students may have difficulty adhering all the time perfectly to social distancing and thereby they really need to stay on the campus where we can keep it safe. And these others coming in, we actually believe very strongly they will be able to adhere to these guidelines and the health checks and a myriad of other safety. How do you get in? How do you get out? We're working on every angle for this. So you have employment threats over faculty and staff who don't adhere to, you know, face masks and maybe safe practices. But if you're expecting students to adhere and you're going to try to social norm it early on, isn't that a recipe for disaster, especially if they don't actually norm? And how's the university going to either enforce that or encourage it? Or what's your plan on the norming? Because we know it's hard. An important piece of this is if the students say, I don't really want to do this, we also and I would have uh, described this at the beginning, we're allowing students to decide from the beginning. So we're going to say, here's what the rules are going to be. This is what we're going to try to live by. We're going to try to do this cohesively in a community to achieve our own you know, best interest in our health. And if this seems like it's just not going to work and you're not happy with it, then the curriculum is available online and your courses are available online. So we don't expect every student will want to live this way and they may not. And that's okay. Even in the middle of the semester, students who decide this is just not what I had bargained for, again, they can take the curriculum online. So I think that we'll get a selection effect and the people who really are excited about having the residential experience the best we can in this new normal will come and will thrive with it. What are you going to do about students who have comorbidities uh, Mm -hmm. or are, are at higher risk? Right. Students and employees as well will of course, be able to at any point if they have immunosuppression or or they just don't want to, you know, they have jitters. I mean, it doesn't have to be a medical condition. However, it would include that. For students, you know, they'll have choices. They are parents and they may decide they don't want to come back to campus. But on campus, we absolutely will have the medical accommodation for that with a living situation that is separated where those students can live and live together. And they can take their classes online or not take them online, depending on exactly what the individual circumstance is and what they're most comfortable with. Similarly, for faculty with immunosuppression or they just feel like this isn't for me. I don't want to teach in person during this pandemic. Again, they can teach their courses. They can teach some of their courses. They could teach some portions of some of their courses online as we have been now. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. I'm looking forward to teaching in the fall, or actually I'm a little dreading it because if I have to go online, then, you know, why should I be teaching in Philadelphia? You know, is it just going to be basically more of the late spring that we all experienced? Is this really going to be the educational experience of being able to be in a classroom with other people? Or are we in the end, because faculty have some risks because there's high risk students actually going to be more online than more in person, despite bringing everyone back to campus? Well, I actually think bringing people back to campus, you know, I guess there are two things that you said there. The academic piece, being online or not being online, we actually feel very confident that the quality of the academic education is absolutely highest quality, even online. And this has a lot to do with faculty being very creative about what they can do. I think small classes have made a big difference. What's different is the part of being in college that's developmental, that's social, that matures a young adult by trying their ideas out serendipitously with their roommates or their friends or trying to lead an organization, things that are not classroom-based. That's really where the distinction is. So we've talked about people being on campus, even if some of their classes are online, but they're getting this other piece that is very large. It, it builds people's sense of confidence. It builds leadership capacity. I think it builds empathy where people are with each other and kind of seeing each other suffer and struggle. It kind of builds the young adult you want to be a good citizen going forward. So I think there's a lot to be gained, even if some of the classes are online. Betsy, what keeps you up most at night when you think about the fall? I think the thing that keeps me up most at night is really this intense uncertainty that is beyond any college president's control, which is really what is the country going to do in terms of taking care of itself during a pandemic? Is the country going to be too impatient and not use the social distancing, not mask, not take the daily health checks seriously. All of the pieces of care that we are putting in, how we're going to live together to be safe. I worry that around the country, there may not be this attention to that level of detail, and yet people will go about their business. And that worries me because then many lives are sacrificed. And of course, the economy really can't sustain that. And I've read often about the 1918 pandemic and about Vassar during that pandemic, in fact, and the second bump was very, very large. And that probably is the thing that keeps me awake at night. Would you close down again in the fall? What level of, say, kids turning positive or staff turning positive or a faculty member, God forbid, being hospitalized? What's going to flip it for you? Or is there nothing that's going to flip it? 
No, that's a really important question. Whenever you are going to open up, you have to know how you're going to shut down and what are the trigger points and what are the measures. So we've designed a, I think, very important system for measurement to know kind of what our trigger points are. So as I said before, we've set aside a set of beds that can be used for self-quarantine and isolation. And we are going to align ourselves, which is exactly one of the metrics used in the state for when this state can open up or close down, which is what is the number of people occupying those beds? And do you have enough extra beds that if there were a sudden outbreak, you could care for everybody? So we have put aside 60 to 70 beds. And if we got to 75, 80% occupancy of those 60 or 70 beds, we would say we now are not prepared for an outbreak because we only have 15 or 20 beds left. And that would absolutely be caused. Now, you know, perhaps something will happen before then, but that we know would be something that would tell us it's time really to have our students spend more time online, a faculty, et cetera, and probably revert. We'd have a lot of, I think, foresight about that because we're going to monitor this all incredibly closely and we're doing a lot of testing, et cetera. So I don't think we'll suddenly wake up and say, oh my gosh, where are we? I think it will be something that um, you know we, we think about constantly. Zeke, I can understand what Vassar is trying to do, but surely this can't work for big you know, urban universities in the middle of town like University of Pennsylvania, where you and I work, or Temple in downtown Philly, or, or NYU, or Columbia. How can that possibly work? Well, I think there are some things that Vassar is trying to do that are working, you know, this sort of de-densifying campuses, putting students in singles, making sure that the only people who have access to buildings are people with IDs. I think also making sure that your ID works only if you filled out symptom checks and people with symptoms are immediately tested. But I agree with you. Most places, they can't be hermetically sealed up in a kind of bubble. They're going to be open and there are going to be a lot of people coming onto campus. You know, Zeke, there are other cultural issues that we've asked this generation or recent generations of college students to deal with. One is sexual harassment. And I, I feel like this is another case where we're actually asking young people to make a kind of cultural shift to take personal responsibility, you know, this time for the health status of their peers. That's a pretty heavy responsibility, and it will be interesting, won't it, to see how this generation responds to that in this really, really a traumatic and unusual circumstance. Actually, Jonathan, I think that's a point that hasn't been highlighted in the discussion about going back to work, going back to uh, school, and that is exactly, you know, the sort of enlarging our perspective, being less sort of individualistic and more community minded that what we do impacts others and what they do impacts us. And I saw recently uh, someone was saying something about face masks that I'm wearing my face mask to protect you and you're wearing a face mask to protect me. And so we're in this together kind of message. It will be interesting whether we can communicate that to our students and whether they find that a positive challenge and, and something that really invigorates them or they sort of chafe against it and are more individualistic. Making the Call is a production of Endeavor Content, executive produced by Max Friedman, Jonathan Moreno, that's me, and Zeke Emanuel. 
Created by Jonathan Moreno and Zeke Emanuel. Our managing producer is Jasmine Romero. Research help from Aaron Glickman. Mixing and engineering provided by Sam Baer. Special thanks to Aaron Ricciardi. If you like this episode, make sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also let us know what you think by tweeting at us at MakeTheCallPod. Thanks for listening, and please stay safe. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.